And we're going to read from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30 this morning. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but he is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Good morning again. Welcome. The unforgivable sin. Sobering. Very sobering passage. Let's pray before we look at this text this morning. Father, we do pray again, as dependent upon you always, this servant of yours speaking is dependent, these hearers of yours are dependent upon the presence and power of your spirit to, to see and absorb this truth. So please, Lord, do so, we ask. Enable me with clarity to declare it. Enable with clarity your people to receive it. Let the dead, spiritually dead, be raised up out of the grave today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Listen to these comforting words of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Or the psalmist in Psalm 130. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God's word reminds us over and over again that there's forgiveness for, for all kinds of sin. 1 John 1.7 says the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. That is from all manner of sin. All kinds of sin. The glory of the gospel is that it covers all types of sin. Private, public, common, the unthinkable. No matter how great that sin may be, the gospel of Jesus Christ cleanses from all kinds of sins. The Apostle Paul, after um, listing um, a number of, of horrid, deviant lifestyles, concludes to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, after that list he says, such were some of you. Such were, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. The Bible's clear. If you flee to Christ by faith alone, you embrace him, repent of your sins, cry out to him to save you, there's forgiveness. There's salvation. Amen? I heard two amens. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. That being said, in no way, in no way does the sobering statement of our Lord in verse 29, Mark chapter 3, contradict that glorious truth. This is a very serious passage that needs to be taken to heart. It's been said of this text, in one sense, it ought to disturb the comfortable and ought to comfort the disturbed. There are people who have no idea that they've committed what's referred to as the unpardonable sin and couldn't care less. Others are walking that line, drawing ever so close to no return. The contented, uncaring world ought to be alarmed because they're headed for hell, which is eternal. On the other hand, there are those who think that they have committed the unforgivable sin and have not. And they need to be comforted and reassured that they have not. Both groups exist within the confines of the the corporate gathering of, of the church, the comfortable who ought to be frightened and the frightened who ought to be comforted as regards this, that which is referred to as the unpardonable sin. Now, I say that by way of introduction because this text addresses and magnifies resistance to and denial of truth. Resistance of, denial of, truth. So we'll get to what that sin is and what it isn't, uh, but there's a great deal going on here that needs to be um, looked into first as regards the Lord Jesus Christ, his mission, and his opposition. Okay? So we'll get to that. So that means you're going to have to stay awake. All right? Um, we're in the middle of what's known to, is a double narrative. Uh, it's a story within a story. It's two situations joined together. We looked at one part last week, and that is so as to describe um, the various kinds of opposition that Jesus is facing. Notice in verse 20, okay? Look at your Bible. In verse 20, a situation is brewing in Capernaum. Jesus has been all throughout the Galilee region, ministering, performing miracles, but the main reason he was out to do what? Preach the gospel. He says this over and over again, for this is the reason I came out to preach the gospel. He shows his compassion along the way. He heals all kinds of of illnesses, all kinds of disease. And he returns, and the crowds are gathered. It says he goes home. That home would be his home base. That's Capernaum, probably Peter and Andrew's house. There's a throng of people there. Word is out that he's home, and they can't even eat. Then, verse 21, the scene shifts, okay, to Nazareth. His family heard it, all that's going on, all that's been going on throughout the Galilee region. They went out, it says, to seize him. Now, last time our attention was given to verse 21, and that verse is then focused in on in verses 31 to 35. So what we saw there was verse 21, the shocking response of Jesus' family regarding his ministry. That is, his brothers, remember, they were not believers at this time. John chapter 7, verse 5 says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. And that was six months before his crucifixion. His mother is there along with them, and she certainly believed, but they, they, they want to bring Jesus out from all of this pressure and get him back home undercover. They're concerned about him. And the scripture says, they think he's out of his mind. They think he's a lunatic, literally. So when the family finally arrives after that five or six hour walk from Nazareth to Capernaum, they they show up in verse 31. 
And they show up to seize him, and as they show up to seize him, Jesus seizes the moment. And what he says is more shocking than what the family thought of him. He takes the subject of high priority in Scripture, high priority in our lives as it should be, and that is the subject of family, And he tells us that there's something deeper, there's something greater, there's something more intimate even than your own family blood ties. Notice when they arrive. His mother and his brothers came, verse 31. They're standing outside. They can't even get in. The crowds are so great. And they arrive, so word gets passed up to Jesus who's inside the house teaching. He says, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. They're seeking you. Jesus, verse 33, asks, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at the crowd within, listening to him teach, says, Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. Jesus redefines family ties right there. He says that the bonds created by commitment to God the one true God, the one and only God, are stronger even than the closest family ties of blood relatives. Thus Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves Son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus systematically dismantles the idea of anyone who thinks that the most important thing in the world is familial lines, that is family bloodlines. Many, of course, make an idol out of their family. One of the takeaways for us last Lord's Day is that we do not make, we be careful not to make a religion out of our family. That we be careful that we don't turn our little children into deities. That we bow down to their every whim. Where their dreams and their desires become a form of worship for mommy and daddy. You know, I've known a Christian parents who attend, who, who they, they, they give the choice to their children where they want to attend church. Okay, honey, prince and princess, um, you have your choice. Should we go to, uh, let's call it First Church of Biblical Exposition and Sound Doctrine? Or uh, uh, First Church of, we're here to amuse you. Amuse. Ah, without. Muse, to think. Amusement means without thinking, i.e., First Church of Entertainment. So little prince and princess... Say, sermons are too long at First Church of Biblical Exposition. Besides that, we like kicking a beach ball around a little tykes class at, at First Church of We're Here to Amuse You. Last week, we saw Jesus topple the common idol of family off the fireplace mantle in the hearth of the home. Jesus' family came thinking him out of his mind. Jesus' family came thinking him to be obsessed, all the while avoiding truth that was right before them. This time we move back to verses 22 to 30. This is a meanwhile back at the ranch episode where that brewing situation in Capernaum in verse 20, 20 comes to a boil. The crowds are pressing in against Jesus. They hear he's back in town. And here now the religious authorities have determined that Jesus, he's not obsessed in their mind. In their mind, he's possessed. He's not a lunatic. To them, he's a demoniac. All the while, denying truth. Family avoids truth. Pharisees deny it. And they claim... He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. 
You know, beloved, oftentimes when we're confronted with a truth that we do not want to admit is true, we will work hard to create some kind of explanation to keep us from having to admit or acknowledge that particular truth. Truth that is uncomfortable, truth that is unpopular, truth that is costly, will move fallen human beings to work overtime so as to adjust, readjust, or create some other explanation to justify one's faulty position. The closer that the sinful, rebellious heart gets to the truth that exposes them as wrong and needing to repent, the harder the fallen human being works to create some other explanation or doctrine to justify their faulty position. Mark, the author, here is intentionally describing the heightened opposition to Jesus at this point in his ministry to extend for us the idea as to just how far human beings will go so as to avoid truth. It's right here. And it's recorded for us here with the intention of magnifying what is at stake. And it's where you end up eternally. Go hear then the setting. Hear now the setting. This is heightened antagonism against our Lord Jesus Christ. Resistance to the truth. This is what it's about. It's resistance to the truth. It's a denial of truth. Now, what have we seen thus far? In our study, we're only in chapter 3. What have we seen? We've seen that the impact and contact of Jesus among the people is, is staggering, to say the least. Would you agree with me? Back in chapter 1, verse 27, this is what we read, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with what? Authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Okay, that is what he said and, and how he said it was nothing like anyone had ever heard before from any rabbi. For, I mean, you name it. Unparalleled authority. Jesus' preaching, beloved, was marked with absolute clarity. No mealy mouth messages by Jesus. Amen? I mean, he came out. He came out of the gates proclaiming the time of anticipation is fulfilled. Fact. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom has come. The kingdom's at hand. Fact. Therefore, imperative, that is, command, repent, and believe in the gospel. Any confusion in those words? Anything shady? No. Clarity. Authority. That takes us to this scene in verse 22. That which was brewing in in verse 20... It's come to a boil in verse 22. Notice. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed. Now, we've seen, this isn't the first time we've seen scribes and Pharisees in the count, but what we have seen as regards scribes and Pharisees of the region of Galilee is the local boys. Okay? Local scribes, local Pharisees. News here has reached Jerusalem, causing great concern in high places. So from denominational headquarters of Jerusalem, they, that is, the big dogs down in Jerusalem, or I should say up on the hill in Jerusalem, send now uh, their religious police. That's what they're doing. Those with greater authority have come into Galilee so as to throw their weight around a little bit, and here they are. Now, already, Jesus doesn't have many friends in Jerusalem. These boys, they haven't forgotten what he did at the outset of his ministry, recorded in John 2, when he went in and turned the tables upside down to the money changers. Amen? But that's not the last time he'll do that. He does it at the beginning of his ministry. He does it at the end of his ministry, just prior to going to the cross. 
So here then, before these specialists arrive, Jesus has performed countless undeniable miracles. Undeniable. So, in order for these guys from Jerusalem to address the masses, to address the reality of Jesus' power without acknowledging him as who he declares to be, which is the Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath, forgiver of sins, all of which are claims of deity. So as not to acknowledge that, in order for them to provide an explanation to what's going on, they have to fabricate what's behind the power of Jesus. Okay? Are you with me? So they come down from Jerusalem. Here they are. And they say, they conclude, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Beelzebul, the god of Ekron, small g. You can read about that in 2 Kings 1. It means something like uh, lord of the dwelling or, or lord of the high place. So have that word dwelling in your mind. Lord of the dwelling. Now, sometimes it's rendered Beelzebub. Okay? Lord of the flies that land on the dung. Okay? So the Jews had taken Beelzebub, they changed it, and and it was so as to uh, uh, create a kind of slur against Satan, Beelzebub. So out of desperation, here they are in an attempt to stir up the people who are pressed in upon Jesus. They want to drive into them fear and suspicion. He's not who he claims to be. These religious hypocrites. Now, Matthew's account, chapter 12, verse 22, explains why they came up with this absurd conclusion. Okay, look at it. It's, it's, it's that same day, and this is that same morning just prior to the account that I just read to you. Look at it, verse 22, Matthew 12. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed, and notice what they said. Can this be the son of David? Okay, so look. In response, there's this great stir among the people, and what they're saying, they're saying repeatedly, could this be, could this be the son of David, person to person to person? In other words, is it possible that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the promised Messiah? That's what's going on. So when these Pharisees hear that, that's when they come up with this outrageous accusation. His power is undeniable, amen? No one ever denied Jesus did miracles. Ever. And then in verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... That means repeatedly saying from person to person, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Hey, you, you who's just said that about David, he's possessed by Beelzebul. That's what they're doing. Since we can't say he didn't do it because he did it, we'll explain how he did it. Twisted, man. Twisted. Jesus responds. Notice, verse 23, he called them to him. You see that? Jesus has come over here. This, beloved, is another exercise of his deity. Come here. He knows exactly who these guys are. He knows where they're from, and he knows why they're there. Come here, he says. So in front of everyone, he's going to show how irrational, how ludicrous, how idiotic Their explanation is for what he's doing. So he said to them, notice, in parables. Now, this isn't a parable in a technical sense, which we're going to see in the next chapter, but this is an analogy. This is an illustration. It means to lay alongside. You take uh, one little anecdote or illustration that doesn't make sense, and you lay it alongside of another that does make sense for the sake of clarity. Okay? So he lays a negative alongside of a positive, And they're simple, logical conclusions. And what it's going to do is it's going to demolish their case against him. 
And also what it does, which is very dangerous, and we'll see this in the next chapter, it serves as a form of judgment upon these false shepherds of Israel. Dangerous. Notice, this, this is just common sense, okay? Common sense shows how absurd their conclusion is. Notice what Jesus says. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Okay? Those are self-evident, universally understood truths. Actually, truths that have been cited over the centuries. Okay? Abraham Lincoln made his famous house-divided speech in, what, 1858 at the Republican Convention. And he said that, a house divided cannot stand. Right? You know, there's a popular uh, uh, cable news show on TV I watch, and they do this man-on-the-street thing, and they go out and they interview people, and it shows how ignorant Americans are today. And they'll throw out a quote. Who said this? Who said that? For instance, you know, um, they'll throw out, um, do not ask what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country, and say, "Uh, uh, um, uh, John John Wayne? (laughs) No, John F. Kennedy. And then they'll throw this one out. A house divided cannot stand. Most people answer it wrongly. He'll say, no, Abraham Lincoln. And I say, no, Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. He said it. Abraham Lincoln was citing our Lord Jesus Christ when he wrote that speech. So, in other words, this is an appeal to common sense. He explains the folly of their conclusion. And and the folly is that it's like civil war, right? Internal strife weakens. Internal strife will eventually destroy. Common sense. How could he be doing Satan's bidding while he's casting out Satan's armies? This is Jesus' reasoning, right? It, It defies common sense to build a kingdom and then attack those within the kingdom. It defies common sense to build a house and then destroy the household within. That's what he says in verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. You know, in other words, you know, shooting your, old, your own soldiers is a direct, one direct threat against one's reign. simple. You know, Satan may be evil, but he's not stupid. Now Jesus is going to move to provide the correct explanation as regards his power and purpose in casting out demons. But, verse 27, but no one Now, the the word but there, that is to say, look, what you said is totally wrong, but now. But now I tell you what's really happening when I cast out demons. And then he proceeds with this miniature miniature, uh, parable. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, that is a verse that is terribly abused In charismatic circles, charismatic theology, that's another message for another time, okay? So let's understand what Jesus is truly, what he truly means by what he says. In order to do so, we have to go back to the beginning, okay? We go back to creation. When God created all things and he established a relationship with man, that is those created Imago Dei, the only creatures created in the image of God is mankind. So he creates a relationship, a loving, living relationship with mankind, beginning with Adam and Eve. And then Satan enters the picture seeking to undo that relationship. Adam fell. When Adam fell, the image of God in man was marred. And Satan got a foothold in human history. But even then, what did God promise, beloved? Genesis 3.15, even then, God promised, okay, between the woman, with the woman's seed, and between Satan, the serpent, I will cause enmity. I will place enmity there, and there will come one who will crush your head. 
And in the process, your heel, his heel will be bruised. Remember that? Right there, he gives that promise. In other words, Satan's doom is certain. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, that's how you understand the Bible. You want to understand the Bible, read Genesis 3.15, and everything that unfolds thereafter is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the whole movement is towards Messiah, who will reclaim what was lost in the fall. So, after centuries of deceiving others into rebellion, after centuries of of, of seducing people into false religious beliefs, he's the creator of all false systems of belief. Satan is. Here now, in time, comes upon the scene into public ministry, the promised one of Genesis 3.15, and... The result of that is unusual demonic activity. It seems as though all hell is breaking loose. You know why? Because it is. Remember, those who were demon-possessed, controlled by demons, remember what the demons spoke through those who were possessed? We know who you are. The ones who knew who Jesus was were demons. They were totally aware of who Jesus was. And the problem was, they recognized that he recognized them and that they couldn't hide out anymore. So they had to confess who he was because he saw them. He sees through it all. He enters the scene. Remember in in Mark 1? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, says the demon through the possessed person? Have you come to what? destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You can imagine Jesus thinking to himself, that's exactly why I came, to destroy you and your chief. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of Man appeared is what? To destroy the devil. 1 John 3.8, Satan entered the world at the fall, set up shop, And he says, he's so bold to say, so crass as to say, this is my house. This is my domain. I have them under my control. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan came to him, Luke 4. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And what did he tell him? He said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been what? Delivered to me. It's been yielded up to me. Dominion of the world was given to who? Adam, the first man. He yielded it up in the fall to the unseen one, to the serpent. I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. That's the temptation of Jesus because why Jesus came? Why did Jesus come? To redeem everything back to back to God through himself as the God-man. But it would only be by way of the cross, not bowing down to the enemy. Scripture calls Satan the God, small g, of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And he is so bold as to claim, this is my house. Beelzebul, Lord of the dwelling. Lord of the place. Which is interesting. Jesus says, no, 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 no. No way. You may have set yourself up. You may have set yourself up under the fall of the first Adam, but let me tell you this. I created all this. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. He's the creator of it all. And he said, I'm taking back what's mine. But friends, understand this. In order for Jesus to take back it all, necessitates that he, as the second person of the eternal Godhead, take it back as a man in a human body to redeem what was lost in the first Adam to be redeemed back by way of the last Adam as 1 Corinthians refers to Jesus as the last Adam he's here to redeem it all back Jesus came to set the set the captives free remember when he went into Nazareth his hometown and he went in there in the synagogue on the Sabbath and the attendant gives him the scroll. It's open to Isaiah. And Jesus reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are 
oppressed. He gives the scroll back to the attendant. He sits down and says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your ears. In your hearing, it's fulfilled. I am he. And then what they want to do with him? Kill him. They wanted to kill him. They rushed him out to throw him over the side of the hill. It was not yet his time. He disappears. He came to rescue those under Satan's domain. He came to, to plunder the strong man's house. So if you're going to plunder the strong man's house, you first have to bind the strong man. Amen? Amen? If you're going to bust into somebody's house and there's a stud inside, if you want to plunder his goods, you have to tie the man up. Amen? That's the idea. Who's the strong man? Satan. Who's the stronger man? Jesus. He binds the man. And then he progressively and systematically dismantles his power. This is what he's doing when he comes on scene. You know, part of the messianic purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ was to plunder the realm of Satan. And you see it unfold right here. So this is a first step, Jesus' public ministry is a first step in Satan's total and final defeat. This is what we see. So casting out demons with a word, remember they had to obey? Be gone! And they had to what? Go, the demoniac, which we'll see in a few chapters. They cry out, legion, remember legion? Cries out. Do not destroy us. Let us go into this herd of what? Swine. They jump over the cliff and commit suicide. Amen. <laughs> okay. Casting out demons with a word is proof that he's bound the strong man, Satan. So that's Jesus' explanation for what's happening. This is what he's come here to do. I'm plundering his house. I'm taking back what belongs to me. And it's not only the individual souls of men and women, but also what belongs to me are the nations that you tempted me with. All the kingdoms of the what? Of the world. See, this is the key in understanding Revelation 20, beloved. Right here. You want to understand Revelation 20? It says the dragon, the ancient serpent, who's the devil, and Satan was bound for a... Thousand years. Thousand years in apocalyptic literature means a long time. It's not literal. That is, between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, he has bound Satan from doing what? From having all influence? No. From specifically deceiving the nations. Satan's power, he is rendered neutralized when Christ was crucified because there on the cross, the head of the serpent was crushed he's neutralized and will yet still be ultimately what destroyed that's what's going on one commentator put it like this quote checkmate has been achieved he the strong man satan who's bound continues to play out his various moods on the board but cannot alter the outcome of the game and in the interim the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. The gospel keys unlock the binding blindness of the nations. Therefore, Jesus said in Matthew 28, right before he ascended, what did he say? All power and authority has been given to me, the God-man resurrected and about ready to ascend. Go therefore and make disciples of all what? Nations. Is that still happening today? You better believe it is. The big dogs from Jerusalem come down and accuse Jesus that his power comes from the power of Satan. They're resisting truth that they know is true. And I'll show you how they know it's true in just a minute. Jesus explains what he's really doing in now. Notice, notice this. Now he says, now, okay, now, big boys, I'm going to tell you something about you. Come here. 
So Jesus speaks now not in parabolic form. He's not, he doesn't speak by way of a parable. He, he, he speaks plainly as regards to the severity of the charges raised against him regarding the power for which he casts out demons. An accusation against the Son of God, right here, bearer of the Holy Spirit. And this leads to Jesus to talk about the unforgivable sin. That is, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 28, truly I say. That is truly, that's the word amen, where we get, from where we get amen. It's the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament. As I live, says the Lord. See the authority? Here's Jesus, truly I say. And that is to say, based on my own authority, I assure you, I assure you that this is true, so take heed. I'm going to say something about your spiritual condition and the danger upon which you are walking in at present. Truly I say to you, notice first, okay? Look at, the, look at this great positive statement, amazing grace. Notice, surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, okay? So if you're sleeping, wake up, hear this clearly. This is an incredible statement as regards the wide expanse of God's grace and mercy. This truly, beloved, is amazing grace. Did you hear what he said? Now, the foundation of this wonderful promise will, of course, be the shedding of his own blood on a cross. And that's in accordance with repentance and faith in the one true God, Jesus Christ. And he says that all kinds of sins, all classes of sins can and will be forgiven, even blasphemous utterances against Jesus and his Father. Amen? Big. This is beautiful. Listen to William Hendrickson. Quote, No matter how grievous or gruesome, there is pardon for them. Okay, don't make sure you hear this. There's forgiveness for David's sin of adultery, dishonesty, and murder, for the many sins of the woman in Luke 7, for the prodigal son's riotous living, for Simon Peter's triple denial accompanied by profanity, and for Paul's pre-conversion merciless persecution of Christians, end quote. Maybe you've cursed God before. Maybe you've cursed the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've shaken your fist at God. Maybe you've torn up a Bible and thrown a Bible across the room. If you're in Christ today, take heart. You hear me? Take heart. It's unlikely that if you're a murderer, you're here. But I can say to some brothers I have locked up in, in some prisons that are lifers, I can say, take, take heart. Because they're in Christ and they're forgiven. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Homosexual acts of one's past. Prostitution. Abortion. And a a, a grievous sin for which many women are gripped by guilt. Thinking they could never be forgiven. You're in Christ, you're forgiven. There is no sin God will not forgive. That's the promise. Except for one terrifying exception. But, verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. It's a very solemn warning. You've heard this referred to as the unpardonable sin, right? He's saying to them, you're on very dangerous ground. You're in very dangerous territory. This is a sin that bears eternal guilt. So the question is, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Okay, obviously, it's, it's, he just said it's not blasphemy against Jesus himself. It's not blasphemy against God the Father. Paul says of himself to have been a blasphemer of Christ, doing it in ignorance and unbelief. The Apostle Paul. So it's not that. So, to understand this, we look at the context of this sin for these guys. Okay, so let's look at this first. Verse 30, notice, he explains it. 
For they had said, for they had said, he has an unclean spirit. So the danger, it comes in two parts. If, if, if you have any care and concern about what this is all about, then you need to listen. Two parts, very carefully. The first part is that there was a manifest, undeniable act of the Spirit of God. That is, the healing of the deaf and blind man. It was undeniable. We read about it in Matthew's account. There was no question he was blind and deaf. There was no question he had been healed. The people even concluded, this must be the son of David. This must be this promised Messiah. Could this be? Could this be from God? The promised one? That's the first part. Undeniable work of the Spirit. Jesus spoke, healed. Second part is that there must be a conscious, intentional act of attributing to Satan what you know to be the work of God. There was no doubt a miracle had taken place. No doubt whatsoever. It had to be of God. And guess what, friends? This group knew it was from God. How do we know that? Let's go back to Jerusalem. Months and months before this, in John chapter 3, remember Nicodemus? He came to Jesus by night on behalf of the Sanhedrin, religious leaders. Notice what he said. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do the signs that you do unless God is what? With him. We know this. Again, never did anyone deny his miracles. Now remember the Pharisees and the scribes, Their resistance and hostility toward Jesus was birthed out of envy. Look at John 11. If we let him go on like this, here's the fear. Everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place, that is our position, and our nation. These guys are gripped by fear. Pride. See, these men were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, beloved. Their responsibility was to read the text and do what? What are we doing here today? Read it, explain it. It's called exposition, not entertainment. You read it, you explain it. Instead, they so buried God's truth, they so buried his word under man-made traditions and case law that when God in human flesh showed up, casting out demons, they rejected him. When he came preaching the gospel, they, in, in, you know, healing crippled and sick people, they said, and they concluded, the work that he's done, doing is evil. It's of the devil. It's Satan himself. For them, that's the unforgivable sin. And some of them were apparently, perhaps not in it, but very, very close to it. Amen? So the question is, can it be committed today? In this context... It can't be in this context. That is this. To see Jesus in a human body with your own eyes, perform a miracle, and then attribute that miracle to Satan. Okay? However, this is a big however, this is a big yet, right here. The possibility of it happening today is certain, and it will include the same two characteristics. Number one, an undeniable act of the Holy Spirit. That's number one. Number two, followed by a persistent, consistent choice of what you know to be from God, and you can conclude that it's evil. It's evil. And let me tell you this. Such an offense, beloved, for those of you, does not happen by accident. This does not happen by accident. This is a conscious act of the will. So it does have its contemporary forms. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. Quote, It is the sin of regarding conversion to Christ and obedience to him as Lord as the ultimate folly. It's a stubborn resistance to Jesus which eventually expresses itself in treating him as the ultimate evil in our lives. End quote. And I'll add this. It's treating the pressing or the prompting 
of the Holy Spirit as an evil intrusion in our lives. You perhaps considered, this is for a person who perhaps considered, I hear the gospel and it makes perfect sense to me. However, I refuse it and I reject it because it seems too narrow. I refuse the exclusivity of the gospel, the fact that there's only one way to God, because that to me sounds evil. You get it? Thank you. So many people are convinced of other ways refusing to accept the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Danger. So the danger then is not unlike these scribes, which is a settled, chosen position of the mind and heart and to be frozen in it, left in it, very dangerous. These men were very dangerously close to that. So the danger for anyone today is this. How parallel is the posture of our heart? How parallel is it to the scribes here in this text. So this is a very sober warning for those who really don't care. You know, there is that frightening statement in Hebrews 6. Look at it. Where there's no longer the possibility of repentance. Now look at this. Hebrews 6, verse 4. For it it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is not someone who's truly regenerate, who's a believer, who all of a sudden is a non-believer. Can someone regenerate, be unregenerate? No, 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 no. No. You can't be born again of the Spirit and then not be born of the Spirit. This this group here are those who've experienced gospel truth. They've tasted it. They've touched it. They've experienced God around their lives. They've been exposed to it. They've experienced the move of God around their lives. Perhaps they professed faith with their mouth at one time or another. They were once part of the Christian community. They probably went to church maybe growing up. They lived in the Holy Spirit's presence, but apostatized. They turned away from what they once professed. Having wholly rejected, W-H-O-L-E, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly rejected the only basis of God's salvation and its faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And they said, it's ridiculous. You know, there are many people who have such a sentimental view of God. You know what they do with his justice? They throw it out the window. They don't care. Because Jesus is so sentimental. They remove his justice from his being. They have this naive notion that God's patience never ends. But it does. And I came across this striking illustration this week in my studies. Listen to this. It's like a buzzard who lands on a piece of carcass and it's on an ice block and that ice block is floating down the river and the ice block is coming towards the falls but the buzzard's not concerned because he looks at his wings and he says, I'll be able to fly away. I've done it before. When the time comes, I'll just flap my wings and up I'll go. And he carries on eating. And when he comes to the falls, he puts his wings out. He starts to flap his wings, but his claws are frozen in the ice. And he cannot fly. He cannot get out. It's too late. The spirit of holiness has forsaken the arrogant sinner forever. Too late. If you're here listening to this, or you're online in a few months from now listening to this, and you're far too comfortable with this, it's intended to make you go away and hate what I said today. 
It is to stir you up. It is to frighten you. It is to shock you. It's meant to warn you. This is a warning. For some, maybe it's final. You get it? If that's you? Hopefully to drive you to repentance and faith. Hopefully. You need to be greatly disturbed. The last thing I want you to be is comfortable. If that's you. If you sit here and you hear this and you think, I couldn't care less. You are the one who's in danger. At the same time, there are those precious, tender-hearted Christians with very tender consciences that grieve every time they sin. And every time they sin, they wonder, have I committed this sin? Let me give you some words of encouragement. As quoted by J.C. Ryle. Those that are troubled with fears that they might have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it. Amen? And for you, beloved, for you, notice, remember, the solemn warning of verse 29 is set within the context of verse 28 that reads, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. If you raged at God at one time or another and you've come in repentance and you're a true believer, you need not fear that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Amen? If you sit here and you could give a rip less, whether you have or not, you are in dangerous, dangerous waters. You hear what I'm saying? And you pass that on. Because I will. I have some people who I love, I will be passing this on to. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in a mess of immorality. I don't know. I don't know the secrets of men's hearts. There's forgiveness for you in the blood of Jesus Christ. Flee to Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess your sins. Cry out to Him to save you. Scripture says, I started with it. There's forgiveness. There's salvation. So flee from it. Cry out. And be certain that you haven't committed this sin. And though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as... No. Notice this as I close. The slanderous accusation of Jesus' family that he's a lunatic. Okay? The slanderous, the slanderous accusations of the Jewish authorities, the big hot shots from Jerusalem, is evidence that belief and unbelief are not the results of proofs. You hear that? In other words, seeing is not always believing. There is to this day this mistaken view. If Jesus would just come back again and show me his miracles, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. If God would just move in a miraculous way and make the stars move around, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. His brothers grew up with him in the same house. The perfect, sinless son, they didn't believe. They saw his miracles. They heard of his miracles. They heard his preaching. They didn't believe. It was the sovereign will of God in the end that they believed. That was the cause of their belief. The Sanhedrin, they knew what he did was by the power of God. And they shifted truth and readjusted their doctrine. Perversion. They pervert doctrine. So, because I said this is a two-part sermon, let's wrap it up. Last week, the family concluded, he's a lunatic. This week, the Sanhedrin, these religious freaks, they conclude he's in league with Satan, who is the father of lies, which makes Jesus a liar because he claimed to be Lord. Okay? Question for you, who do you say that he is? There's only three options. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Okay, and don't give me any of this nonsense that you think he, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. And he certainly did some miracles, you know. I think he's a good teacher. Don't be a fool. 
And I'll close with C.S. Lewis's oft-quoted words. Almost done. Quote, C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people say often about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But do not let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. Don't you dare say he was a good person and deny him as Lord. He's king and kings. He's Lord of lords. He is the framer of the universe. He spoke and it leapt into existence. He is God incarnate. That means God who came to earth and took on human flesh, who died on a cross, rose again, ascended, and he rules now. And if you're not in him, he serves as your judge. Flee to Christ and make him your savior. All sanity resides in him. The world's insane. He's the sane one. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. Christians, rest in the fact that you're saved. From who? From God. By God.